thank you for tuning in to another episode of Highly Functional. This is Brianne Showman, and I am joined today by movement specialist Taylor Cruz. Taylor has a different background than most coaches we interact with, which is why I was so excited to get him on here to talk today. The methods he uses creates more resilient athletes and helps athletes recover faster from injuries when they do occur because we know things happen in our day-to-day life, things happen in our training, things happen when we're competing that are out of our control. Whether you are an athlete, a clinician, or a coach, you can pick up some great information in order to create more resilient athletes in yourselves and your athletes from what Taylor has to share. So let's tune in. Taylor, thank you for joining me today. How are you? I'm good, thanks. Thanks for having me on the show. You are quite welcome. I'm super excited. I talked with one of your athletes fairly recently and got into a good discussion about what you're doing with him. So it really fascinated me how these training methods or these training methods that you're using for essentially creating more resilient athletes in order to reduce these risk of injuries um, that can just happen by you know, in our day-to-day life. So I'm excited to talk to you about all of that. But first and foremost, let's just get into how you got into doing all this. Sure. Um, my, uh, my background is, uh, is in physical education and health. So it kind of all started for me when I was in college. Um, I went to Plymouth State University, actually right down the road from where I currently live here in central New Hampshire. And kind of went into college um, knowing I wanted to do something in movement, but not really knowing what that meant. So I kind of dabbled in a couple of different options that I had and um, tried to sift through things and figure out where I belonged. And in that process, um, I met a, uh, a guy who, um, who's a good friend of mine and, and my mentor, Tom Barbeau, who's an alpine ski racing coach and a conditioning coach. And he was teaching a unique system of exercise called the Berdenko method. And a lot of people don't know about the Berdenko method, which is unfortunate because really the Berdenko method, in my opinion, is one uh, has, I guess I would say it has a, it has had a huge influence on what um, everybody is currently excited about in the fitness and training world in terms of um, functional training, if you will, or bringing back novelty into our exercise programs so that things become really, really dynamic and focus not only on um, just strength training per se, but also bringing in those elements of coordination work and balance work and mobility work. And so I took his class in college and was immediately hooked on this thing called the Berdenko method. And it sort of drove my journey um, up until this point because the Berdenko method being so novel and teaching so um, teaching us so much about how important it is to to um, move our bodies in a way that allows us not to get trapped in that linear box um, it's been a huge influence on me and um, that also led me to um, some of the uh, some of the well a lot of the work that we currently do which is more neurocentric based work um, and a lot of our education comes from uh, Z Health, which is a uh, performance education company that basically is breaking down a lot of neuroscience um, and relating it back to how we can use these, uh, these great concepts that come from applied neurology, how we can use them in our training and rehab experiences to, uh, to really increase 
um, results and uh, decrease the time that it takes to have those results. So yeah, all of that was kind of a, you know, that's, those are the two big inspirations for me that kind of led me to what I'm doing right now, which is just, you know, I'm a movement specialist and I work uh, primarily with athletes, helping them, uh, you know, with very specific performance goals and um, also helping them eliminate aches and pains and, and uh, just really elevate their performance um, for whatever it is that they do. So when you're getting into these training programs with your athletes and coaching your athletes, I've talked to a number of people and I've seen a lot of what you're putting out there as far as what you're doing, but how does this, the Bernanke method and the Z health, how does this all tie into what you're actually doing with your athletes? So it basically ties in because it's, um, it's allowing us to not get too focused on any one or two qualities. And it's, um, it's bringing in a more novel approach that pays respect to how important it is to actually build coordination, to build mobility, um, to build that resilience, you know, in end ranges of motion and to improve motor control. Um, and and it, the, the neat thing about um, offering more of a, a neurocentric approach to training and rehab is that we're able to work. Um, with some really unique high order systems where not only are we doing the things that people would consider traditional mobility work, but we're also integrating the visual system into what we do and the vestibular system into what we do, which I know the word vestibular could be new for a lot of people. Basically what that means is that we have ways to, um, to increase balance and target um, our onboard balance system which is located in our inner ear. And that's what I'm talking about when, um, when I say vestibular. So we can work with these high order systems and integrate vision and vestibular work to, uh, to create some really, really impressive and exciting outcomes for athletes. So when you were talking about neurocentric and going to like end range of motion, developing the coordination in those ranges, let's describe as well as you can what that looks like when working with someone, because I know it's totally different than what people think about as far as end range of motion, working on coordination skills, that sort of thing. Yeah. So, um, it sounds like, um, you're referring basically to like mobility work and motor control work. And, and honestly, that's really where it all starts for us, regardless of who we're working on or who we're working with. So, um, mobility is essentially, well, I guess I should say it this way. A lot of people um, probably think that mobility work is primarily focused on gaining, say, flexibility or range, range of motion. And where that is definitely true, um, we actually look at mobility work a little bit differently in the fact that we are um, interested in improving motor control just as much um, as improving range of motion. And so the word mobility is really um, all encompassing in the fact that we want to be able to move our body our body parts through their fullest ranges of motion but express control as we do that because if we if we have a specific range of motion and we haven't developed the motor control to go with that range of motion we're putting ourselves at um, more uh, risk of injury and um, and that's uh, that's obviously not what we want so mobility work for us comes down to teaching people how to move their joints through their fullest range of motion 
in multiple different speeds because we have to we have to create um, speed variability so that the mobility that we do gain over time is specific to the way that we're going to use our body. So it's not always going to be slow. And what we see is that a lot of people's mobility work is generally focused at a very slow speed. And that's a great place to start. But eventually we have to start expanding our thinking and say, well, if life in sport is going to push me or force me into positions that, uh, that, I may be, that may be unexpected, I need to make sure that I have those prerequisites and, and understanding of how to control my body at varied speeds and in different positions. So our mobility work really goes through this um, progressive process where it starts out pretty, um, pretty uh, simplistic as you're learning how to move your joints. And then before you know it, you're working at different speeds in different body positions and then eventually under different loads. Meaning that, you know, you could be working with different forms of resistance at the same time as uh, learning how to mobilize your joints in, uh, in their full ranges of motion. So when we do, you know, as far as mobility work goes, I mean, that makes up a huge portion of, uh, of what we do with our athletes. And we find that um, when you take an athlete that hasn't really um, gone through a progressive process or really done any mobility work outside of just, you know, what they think mobility is, which might be stretch their hamstrings and foam roll, you know, their gas rocks. Once you get an athlete into this really novel approach of, uh, of joint mobility, some really, really cool things start to happen. Well, and one of the reasons I really wanted to speak with you is because I was talking with one of your athletes fairly recently that had a pretty severe ankle sprain and was back to training within two weeks, no issues. And, mm-hmm. and I can only imagine is from going through those end ranges of motion under load and under speed and le- the body just learning how to respond to that better. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the thing is with injury, it's like you can't necessarily prevent it, right? I mean, these, these, these uh, guys and gals that are you know, competitive athletes at a high level, they're going to be pushing, pushing the limits all the time. And so you might not be able to say, okay, you can definitely prevent injury, but you might be able to minimize the risk. But even more importantly, you might be able to mitigate the damage that could be done um, when an injury does occur. And, you know, if you think about it like this, if you're an athlete who's gone through an extensive mobility practice and you've increased your, um, your body's maps, so to speak, so that you know where your body parts live, you can move them through their fullest range of motion and you can express that at different speeds. Well, when your sport unintentionally puts you in some of those awkward positions, um, you basically are now prepared or at least more prepared than you were before to undergo some of those loads in, in those stressful positions. So we like to think for sure that um, the time spent doing uh, mobility work is certainly, uh, certainly really, really important because if you do have an injury, then um, your recovery time will likely be uh, faster than it would have been before. That's awesome. I'm just curious, the thought came to mind as you were talking. Like you said, we can't, prevent everything from happening. Like things happen, sports happen. Has there been any research done or your viewpoint even on using these methods and either severity or um, how often like ACL injuries occur versus traditional training, things like that. Cause if the body can respond better. Yeah. I mean, I'm not, I'm not really sure like 
I don't know if I have like nothing's coming into my mind in terms of like a specific research um, article or anything that talks about it. But I mean, w- you know, as far as like we're 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 kind of always doing that research, in my opinion, because um, for example, I work with uh, I work with a fair amount of endurance athletes, and working with endurance athletes is actually really cool because they track everything and uh and and they're super fanatical about about having um basically those those numbers that they can look out look at to measure you know hey better same or worse and you know we're big believers in everybody's different so it's it's difficult to have something like super um super objective that says you know this drill does this and you can expect this percentage of uh you know reduced injury but it's fun to watch some of these athletes go through this, um, this progressive process because what they generally start to report is that um, they're able to stress their body much, um, much differently than they were before, and they're not paying a price for doing it. They're able to walk away from their training sessions, you know, if they're putting long miles on or whatever it is that they're doing, and they're feeling like they, they're walking away, um, feeling like they could have done more. and that is really fun for me to see because that kind of is the research in my eyes where um, we're seeing athletes build more resiliency. Their tissue is adapting to the effort. And um, again, working with, um, we, I work with all different types of athletes, but I, I am particularly excited about what happens with endurance athletes because um, one of the neat things to consider with, um, with mobility work that um, very, very few people um, really talk about is that it may not be the actual mobility work in the moment that is causing the um, the eventual long term change that we're all looking for. It's likely the miles that you put on your body afterwards, because the the way that force is transmitted through our body during the human gait cycle. If you do say 10, 15 minutes of mobility work in a training um, session, well the the miles that you put on your body afterwards, whether you're walking, running, or doing other uh, training drills, you're starting to basically um, build up healthier repetitions of, say, walking or running. And the way that force is going through your body is hopefully uh, more healthful and more efficient. And so that starts to load your tissues in a much different way than, um, than you had before. And so what we actually um, teach our athletes is that it may not be the actual in-the-moment mobility work that is doing the most good for you. It's actually the after part where every time you walk or run, you're essentially uh, moving with healthier steps, and there's a long-term tissue remodeling effect that starts to happen. So um, it does, you know, it takes uh, it takes some time to see that, but I think that. Uh, any uh, any good competitive athletes that, that are tracking their their results would be pretty excited about um, those kinds of uh, transformations. Um, you know, you, you mentioned six months and they'll probably be excited. So um, that's not actually a long time in the grand scheme of things if you've got big goals for what you do. Yeah, as a clinician, that makes a lot of sense to me. I word it differently, but, you know, essentially I will do mobility work and then it's like we need to use that motion. We need to load that motion so yeah. your body actually learns like how to actually use that available motion. Just doing the mobility work and your body is not trained to actually knowing how to use it is 
isn't going to be beneficial at all. Yeah, that's the deal. That's the deal. It's like once, uh, whether we're working with pain um, or we're working to um, fix movement problems, we have to teach our brain what is possible. And so we, we always say, you know, if we're, if we're trying to eliminate pain or something, we're looking for that, that one pain-free repetition so that we can teach your brain that one pain-free repetition is possible. And then we can start this process where one pain-free repetition is now safe. And eventually one is going to equal two and two is going to equal three as we run through this, this uh, process. So yeah, I'm with you. You know, you, you got to teach your brain and your nervous system how to utilize what you're giving it and loading those gains is super important. And you just made a great point there as far as just that pain-free repetition that our brains are crazy and amazing all at the same time. The fact that it just remembers this pain cycle, whether there's actually pain there or not. So it takes a long time for it to get over the fact that it's like, okay, this movement is safe again, even though I don't think it's safe. Sure. Yeah. It's, um, you know, there's a lot more talk out there these days about the nervous system and, you know, uh, gaining safety and movements and, and, um, it's, uh, it's important stuff to, uh, to listen to because like you just said, um, it's, this is actually a good, um, a good time to even introduce one of the, uh, one of the educational, um, lessons that we teach all of our athletes. Um, basically things come down to the fact that our, our brain and our nervous system is constantly trying to predict whether or not what we're doing is actually safe. And our brain is sort of more wired for survival, or we can say that it's wired for survival before it's actually wired for performance. So your brain doesn't know that you're doing lunges. It doesn't understand that you're doing squats just to do squats. It doesn't necessarily understand the stress levels that you have between sitting in traffic, looking at a red light, being at a full stop, and finishing a really hard training session, right? So we have to sort of um, understand that how our, how our nervous system and our brain is wired. And when we, when we do start to understand that more, we can have a better understanding of, um, of what pain is and where performance comes from. And it really, and then in the process of training, yeah, we're trying to teach our brain that what we're doing is safe so that we can be granted permission to do it and do it well and efficiently. So we have a, um, we have a uh, educational tool um, that we spend a lot of time talking about with our, with our clients, our, our athletes, and our coaches. And it's based off of a lot of the modern research that's currently going on with um, uh, neuroscience research with pain education. And it's this idea of the threat neuromatrix and something that we refer to as the threat bucket. And some people, when they hear that, they go, well, I don't understand what threat is. Well, you can, you can use threat and stress as interchangeable words. So it could be the stress bucket. It could be the threat bucket, however you want to look at it. But basically, if you can visualize um, just, a, uh, just a bucket and maybe about halfway up on that bucket is a little spigot. You know, it looks like a garden hose type of spigot. And we've got... And in that bucket is basically our current level of threat. So the bucket represents our nervous system, if you will. And inside the bucket is that level of threat. Different stressors that are entering our life 
um, are going to have an influence on that level of threat inside the bucket. So that means that um, we could have, uh, you know, sleep matters. So if you're having sleep issues, that's going to add um, stress or threat to that level in, the th on, in our threat bucket. Balance issues, vision issues, um, you know, any kind of movement issue, any kind of uh, stress from our job, relationship stress, all these, all these threats are constantly bombarding us. And as they do that, that level of threat begins to rise inside our threat bucket. Now, eventually, if the level of threat reaches the threshold, which is remember where that spigot is, it starts to spill over. And the output could be a number of different things, but we usually, you know, generally speaking, it's pain. So lots of different, uh, lots of different stresses coming in will, will bring that threat bucket to its threshold, and then there's eventually going to be an output. The output could be in the form of pain. It could be in the form of depression. It could be in the form of anxiety. It could be in the form of high blood pressure, right? It could take the, a number of different um, forms. But the point is, um, when we're talking about training and rehab and we're approaching it from more of a neurocentric um, uh, lens, we have to understand a little bit about how things work holistically so that our athletes can learn that performance is going to be driven on um, a lot of different things, not just uh, biomechanics. And pain doesn't actually live in the body part where we feel it. It's an eventual outcome of the brain based on all of these incoming um, threats that allow our, our um, bring our threat bucket up to its possible level where it spills over. So that kind of all relates back to, is it safe or not? And if I do things that my nervous system is perceiving as possibly unsafe, and I do enough of those things, and then on top of that, I have all these incoming threats that are coming into my bucket, eventually I'm gonna, I'm gonna hit some roadblocks as, as an athlete and I need to learn how to empty my threat bucket. And that is literally what I feel like my job is for these people, is I am basically an options facilitator for helping athletes learn how to empty their threat bucket. And it sounds ridiculous, but it is basically where all our success comes from. We teach these athletes how to adopt these healthy behaviors, they attach to this idea of the threat bucket, and then it's then they start learning in the process. Like, hey, I feel like I feel like I'm reaching that point. Like, there's that pain in my foot again. Maybe I better reevaluate what I'm doing, my training loads, um, or maybe I better start thinking about improving my sleep, or whatever it may be. And as we lower those levels of threats, bingo, we start to get some really really um, nice improvements in people's training and. It's a fun process to watch athletes go through. And then when you tell them, hey, by the way, that knee pain that you've had on and off for three years, the pain's not actually inside your knee. It's actually an output of your brain. Then they start going, they start asking some deeper questions. And in that process of pain education, we actually see them start making more progress faster because they're no longer afraid. It's very freeing for them. Oh, maybe there's not necessarily an a problem with my knee anymore um, I just have to now figure out what are my existing threats and how do I lower them pain science truly is really fascinating with everything that can happen with the body totally 
So for someone who is new to the threat bucket and has to start working through these different things in their life that are filling it up, what's like, how does that conversation go with you and the athlete to start kind of deciphering what's going on? Well, it all, it's a great question. So um, it all starts with a health history. So one of the things that I, I really take a lot of time to do with our athletes is understand their personal health history. Because we can have a threat bucket that's filling up from, uh, you know, more, uh, more current issues that they're dealing with. But we can also have a threat bucket that's been full for a long time based on, a, uh, based on previous experiences or, you know, health history. You know, and, and every athlete's generally got a, um, a fairly uh, deep health history because they've been, you know, putting their body through a lot um, over the course of time. So it really does start with a health history and getting them to, to, um, to understand why that's important to me. And then a athlete's health history sort of directs my thinking and helps me connect some dots. So that's where we begin. And then we take that into more of the, the pain education and the, in the threat bucket uh, education. Cool. Let's get into, kind of ties into the neurocentric stuff a little bit, getting yeah. off the pain science though, but the vestibular system, we kind of mentioned it in passing. I want to dive into that a little bit more. Yeah. So the vestibular system is super, uh, super interesting. Definitely one of my mo most interested topics. Um, and I think that once it's explained to people um, in a way that's relatable, they can really start to grasp why this idea is so important. So um, I touched on it. Um, well, I, let me start here. So we've got, we've got an onboard balance system and it's called the vestibular system and it lives inside our inner ear. And some people might be familiar with that word vestibular and other people haven't heard that word, but they know what vertigo is. And so vertigo is actually a vestibular, um, vestibular mediated, um, issue. And basically we have, uh, we have these organs in the inner ear that tell us which way is up and which way we're going. And some people may have had, you know, some level of education on this really, really simply put inside um, our vestibular organs. We basically have, people have heard of like maybe semicircular canals. We've got fluid inside these canals. And as we move through space or our head and neck is moving, our vestibular system essentially senses accelerations in head and neck movement and also accelerations in body movement. And when that occurs, the, the fluid in our inner ear basically moves. It's like a gelatin. And there's like all these little hair-like sensors inside the vestibular system and the, the fluid eventually bends those, uh, those little hair-like instruments. And in that process, some information is relayed back to our brain about which way, which way we're traveling and which way is up. So we have an onboard balance system that a lot of people didn't know about. And the reason why this is important is because when it comes to balance, we have to know how to target this system because this system called the vestibular system is intimately connected to our spinal musculature and even our uh, extensor muscles all the way down into our lower body. So obviously we all know that, you know, the performance and fitness industry is super excited about training the posterior chain. Most people know what that is. 
Well, it's actually our vestibular system that has a lot to do with the muscle tone and function of our posterior chain. Because remember, the posterior chain helps us stay up on two legs. It helps us win that war against gravity. So as the vestibular system is activated, it goes through you know process of activation and um, inhibition based on how we're moving. It's constantly communicating to the muscles of our spine and even our lower extremity to help us do what we want to do and, and help us move well. So in addition to training our extensor muscles through you know, a biomechanical approach, you know, whether it's strength training or any kind of exercises that you like, it's really powerful to also know how to integrate the vestibular system into that because now you're taking a bottom-up approach through biomechanics but you're also taking a top-down approach utilizing the brain. So this is what we do. And, and this, is how we, this is how we can create some really exciting results for athletes with stability and balance. And we can even make it more, we can integrate it in a way where it becomes sport-specific for the individual. And in understanding how to assess the vestibular system, we can even discover whether or not certain parts of it are underperforming. And then we can basically customize drills to, to bring those parts of the system up to speed so that we can then hopefully see improvements in some of those qualities that I mentioned, balance, stabilization, and um, really any kind of movement. So it's, uh, it's really, it's quite complicated. Um, that's, uh, that's a pretty simplistic viewpoint of it, but it's, uh, it's a lot of fun to work with. And, uh, and um, it's, uh, it's really created a lot of uh, amazing results for us to see because no matter how much we do it and how much we see the result, it's so hard to look, to look at a person doing it and say, wow, because we're exercising your eyes and your inner ear, it's equaling this result of a better squat, a better lunge, or uh, better stability, better balance. So it's, it never gets old to see it happen. That's awesome. What are some examples of some things you do with a vestibular system with your athletes? Sure. So basic vestibular drills would look like um, staring at a target, moving your head in different, uh, in different directions while keeping your eyes fixated on a target. And so that's, that's essentially um, training a reflex called the vestibulo-ocular reflex. And it's one of the fastest reflexes in our body. And it allows us to do what's called gaze stabilization on a target. So I think everybody can re relate with the fact that if we're going to be an athlete and we're going we're to move through the world well, we have to be able to fixate our eyes on targets and basically look at the things that we want to look at without our eyes coming off those targets. And that's essentially one of the main qualities that with vestibular training. So a basic vestibular drill, or as we call them, a VOR, would simply be um, holding your finger out in front of you at arm's length and looking at your fingernail or maybe a pen or pencil that you have in your hand and moving your head back and forth, um, left and right, while keeping your eyes on a target or moving your head up and down in a vertical plane while keeping your eyes on that target. Seems really simple. And it should be, but what we constantly see is that lots of people can't do it well enough. So we, we start there. Um, there's a lot of other different kinds of, of more advanced drills that, that get worked in as well. 
But that's where we start. Can the athlete actually stabilize their eyes on a target while either their head and neck is in motion or their body's in motion? And when you kind of watch an athlete start to learn this stuff, kind of through the assessment lens um, from the coach's perspective, sometimes what you see is an unstable eye. And you'll see that just because it looks like the eye is just kind of ratchety and it doesn't want to hold the target very well. And that could create um, a lot of movement issues because normally those issues will get even worse when, um, when a person gets fatigued. So at the most basic level, we're, when we talk about vestibular training, we're talking about teaching your, your brain and your body how to stabilize its gaze on a target while the rest of you is moving. Awesome. Thank you for clarifying that. Yeah. Let's kind of get into, because you've covered a lot of stuff here that I'm sure a lot of coaches, a lot of clinicians, a lot of people who work with athletes aren't familiar with. Um, and I know you have ways that you educate coaches on this. So let's kind of get into those methods or the programs you have and the platforms you have in order to help other people learn. Sure. Yeah. So, um, for coaches, we have a really cool um, online option. So we we basically have a uh, basically like a portal, and um, inside that portal is a bunch of educational content that I that I create for our coaches. And um, you, it's it's our opportunity to uh, to talk about some of these neurocentric ideas and also um, create some uh, some fun assessments and drills for coaches. And it's it's a great place to um, get an introduction to some of the things that we've already talked about um, on today's show. Um, primarily, uh, what does it look like and what does it mean to actually train the vision and vestibular system? So there's a bunch of information inside um, inside there. And that's um, that's been really fun for us and to get people's feedback and, and build that out. There's a bunch of lessons. And um, we've had some, it's been fun because we've had some coaches come on board that really have had no experience um, with, uh, with anything like vision and vestibular training. And they've, uh, they've picked it up quite nicely and, and already started, uh, you know, integrating it into their, um, into what they do as trainers and coaches. So, so that's what we have going on as far as our coaches education. Um, and, and then also I work one-on-one uh, -on -one with athletes remotely, uh, programming, that kind of thing. So those are, those are the two things that we do um, as far as the online space goes. Awesome. I really find the vestibular part interesting, um, just for the fact that when I, before I started working primarily with athletes, I worked in general outpatient, did a lot of vestibular, saw a lot of the vertigo stuff. And so mm -hmm. I've done all of these things with people. I've never, unless I was seeing someone who had had a concussion, that sort of thing, it's something I've never really thought about integrating into the training with my athletes. So, but it makes so much mm -hmm. sense. You're explaining how, you know, it plays into the posterior chain and, um, you know, everything else that we do, focusing on that object while we're still moving in sports. So it's yeah. great to think about. Well, you bring up a good point, actually, because I've had a lot of conversations with, um, with practitioners like yourself who have said the same thing. This type of work is generally looked at as what you do maybe in a, um, in a concussion rehabilitation setting or what you do in some sort of rehab setting, but you only do it for a little bit and then you move on. And um, it has enormous value 
in, uh, in those arenas, especially with, uh, with concussion rehabilitation. But what, we, what we're seeing is that there's a huge gap in understanding how to take the same material and make it novel enough and hard enough and specific enough for our athletes. And so that's kind of where we come into play, where we're taking generally healthy people and we are figuring out how to use these, these great concepts in applied neurology and we're figuring out how to um, insert it into their training so that we can create an integrative process um, and offer it to them. So it's, uh, it's interesting. There's definitely a large gap there. Yeah, for sure. If someone wants to, not saying they aren't ready to work with a coach yet, but they want to kind of start integrating some things into their training in order to just kind of improve their game a little bit, what are some kind of two or three tips that they can start integrating easily on their own? Okay. So we've got a template that we're constantly, uh, we're constantly putting out there and teaching. Breathe, see, balance, move, feel. That's kind of the gig right there. We feel like if, if an athlete can, um, can understand these categories, breathe, see, balance, move, feel, and they can start to um, get some education on how to incorporate those things into their, um, their training, their, their rehab, or their self-care, that really good things will, will happen. So the first category is breathing. And breathing is a popular topic right now. There's so many different types or types of or systems out there that offer different breathing education. And uh, really what it all comes down to is we understand the fact that we need to breathe. And there's lots of ways to do it. And in my experience, everybody's different. And there may not be a right way or a wrong way to breathe. But what we do know is that athletes should have some level of breathing practice somewhere in their training. And so we do a ton of breathing work with people and you don't have to be an endurance athlete for breathing work to make sense for you. Breathing work can be a really good addition to um, your mobility practice. It can be a good um, addition to trying to eliminate pain. And, um, and then for the more advanced athletes that are doing lots of uh, endurance type things, breathing becomes essential because we want you to have as many options when it comes to breathing as possible. So I believe that one of the best places to start is breathing. Um, and then, of course, as we, when we, you know, inside our, our membership and stuff, people start to learn, okay, the C element, the, the visual system, and the balance element, the vestibular system, brings us to, to movement, and we've talked a lot about mobility. I think mobility work is going to be um, the, next, the next category for anybody to really consider. Um, so breathing and mobility end up being the two most powerful tools that we use for athletes to help empty their threat bucket. And so if you can start to adopt better mobility practices and understand what, um, what mobility really is and how it goes beyond just stretching your quads and your hamstrings or just foam rolling your calves, right? It goes beyond that. Now you're going to start seeing, um, some, some changes in the way that you move and the way that you feel. So big two right there, breathing and mobility. Awesome. If someone wants to reach out to you with questions or wants to find more out about your different programs, how can they find you? How can they follow you? 
Sure. Yeah. Um, we've got, uh, we're, we're really active on Instagram. Uh, our handle is at cruise elite. So it's K R U S E E L I T E cruise elite. And you know, we, we post, um, we post up on Instagram all the time, show people the types of the types of drills that we're doing on a daily basis. And, um, might be kind of interesting for some of the listeners to check it out because, you know, I talked about what it is to train the vestibular system and stuff like that. And you'll actually see us doing that, um, on our Instagram page. Um, in addition to that, our website is uh, cruiseelite.com. And on our website, you can get all the information you need in terms of our uh, online membership where coaches and practitioners and therapists can get involved and uh, learn about uh, some of the stuff that we discussed today. And any athlete who's, uh, who's looking for guidance on um, one-on-one coaching, um, who's interested in, um, in our remote coaching platform, um, can also uh, get the information that they, uh, that they need there as well. Awesome. And I'll just throw out, you do have some really cool content on your Instagram um, with the Thanks. different vestibular agility, coordination, just functional movement stuff. So it is really cool to check out if you want some ideas on things to do. Um, definitely check out um, that Instagram page for sure. Yeah, I've been trying to load up our IGTV library lately too. So there's a bunch of mobility uh, mobility drills on there. Some of our heavy hitters that uh, that a lot of our athletes give us good feedback about. So um, you know that's our thing. We just want to get the information out there. And so if you uh, if you want to pick up uh, a mobility practice starting today, gosh, there's got to be six or seven really really high payoff drills waiting for you there. Awesome. Thank you so much for that. And thank you so much, Taylor, for your time today. I really do appreciate it. Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks for having me on. And that concludes this episode of Highly Functional. I truly appreciate the time you spend to listen to myself and my colleagues share with you how to become highly functional individuals and how to be highly functional individuals. If you learned great information from this, I would love for you to share it with your friends and help them become highly functioning individuals as well. Until next time, go out and be highly functional.